0: Welcome
1: to Hit for Six. It's a a cold, greyish day, Friday the the 19th of February. Uh, But exciting times. There's lots of good cricket happening in sunnier climes, uh, including, of course, England-India. And, Michael, since we last recorded, uh, we haven't actually... It was before the first test, so we haven't reviewed both England's wonderful victory in the first test and their uh, rather grisly and disappointing defeat in the seconds. But to review both of them, we've got a, a, a very special guest, Uh, Jonathan Liu from The Guardian, thank you so much uh, for joining us. How are you?
2: I'm I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Well, you're very welcome. Um, It's it's great to have you. And uh, yeah, how's how's the last, sort of the latest lockdown been for you, lockdown 3.0?
2: Yeah, I mean, they they, they just got progressively worse and worse. I mean, mean, the only real saving grace about lockdown three is it's probably gonna be a lot better than lockdown four, five and six so you know there's there, there's that um i think part, partly the uh the weather's been a big part of it not being able to you know kind of go out and, and hang out with with people and, and sit in the park and has been has been a real downer uh in january and february could have pretty pretty depressing months so at the best of times but having having lockdown and shit weather um and you know there's just like there's just football on all the time have you noticed this it's just like, there's football on now. There'll be football on, you know, in a couple of hours. Like, every time I, t- I turn the TV on, it's like, there's more football. Have you seen the Mitchell and Webb sketch? The... Well, yeah, it is. It is basically yeah. like that. I mean, it's, it's come true, you know, more appositely than, than either of them could possibly have imagined. It's just, who is it today? It's, you know, Dundee against Hull, against Norwich, against, you know, and I, I obviously I write about football quite a lot, and I don't, I don't really, I don't know anything anymore. It's just, it's just always there.
1: I'm quite encouraged that you're finding it hard to keep up because I'm a, you know, I'm a football fan. Cricket's my favourite sport, but I really like football. Chelsea fan. But it's, it's relentless. There was like Man United beat Southampton 9-0. I still haven't seen the highlights of it because there's been so much other football to watch since then that I just kind of had to let it go. Are you as a, someone who professionally follows and writes about football basically finding that lots is passing you by?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's very hard as a, you know, as a professional football journalist to say, you know what, it's fine not to watch that. Um, It's slightly easier in cricket, actually, because, you know, there are 35 hours in a test match. And with the best will in the world, unless you're actually at, you know, actually, even if you're at a test match, you spend so much time chatting, looking up quick info, going on social media, going to the loo, making tea you know, go for a walk, go to the blue again. It's just, you don't see every ball. It's the same, you know, it's the same if you if you buy a ticket and you go and watch it. That's It's more accepted. But I feel like in football, there's an expectation that everyone must watch everything. And that's the relentless part. It's fine not to watch some of the football. I mean, it's okay. There'll be more in, you know, two to four hours time. It, it, it's coming around again. That train's never late. You know, it does feel pretty monotonous after a while. But then, you know, what else are we going to do?
1: Well, exactly that.
2: Why do you think I'm doing this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, has helped, it has helped
0: us. That a lot of our guests don't have anything else to do. And so suddenly our hit rate of our request to come on, you know, it shoots up.
1: Yeah, it, yeah. it really has done. Was, we had Paul Nixon on a little while ago and I kind of asked him as a question, like, what do you do as a county cricket coach in November during a lockdown? Surely not a lot. And I mean, to be fair to him, it did sound like he was relatively busy. But yeah, it is, a, it is a time where we do have, always have a bit of free time around, don't we? Because even if you're working, like we're all three of us are lucky enough to have jobs and full-time jobs to keep us going. It's every t- moment you would have spent socialising, doing anything slightly fun that's extracurricular, it's basically sucked up and, and taken away by, by lockdown and rules and all the rest of it.
2: Yeah, I, I have somewhere I, I need to be, it's like the great lie of our times, you know, no you don't, you know, you've got nowhere, you've got nowhere you're legally allowed to be, although having said that I do have to go and collect my daughter from North in about an hour, so uh, that's, well, yeah, that, yeah. Is, that is a, a legitimate reason, but, we'll but uh, generally.
0: And we'll accept, you know, I've got a column due in an hour, because that's also fair enough, but yeah, on the whole, nowhere else to be really. So how,
1: how have you found, um, on the test matches then? They're on Channel Four, so you are taken away from Sky Sports and BT for once to watch sport elsewhere. How's it been for you, like, kind of? I suppose reporting on those games and following them from from your living room.
2: Yeah, I, I, it's been obviously great to have it on, on Channel Four. Have it on free to air. Uh, like the word of mouth, and I guess this is from friends and friends of friends, is that uh, more people? It is resonating with with more, a slightly wider crowd and a slightly wider audience than it would have done if it had been on Sky. Um, in terms of the the scheduling, I'm, I'm not really, um, you know, I, I don't have to, I'm not reporting on, on the games like a lot of colleagues are. So what I'll generally do is I'll, I'll wake up, I'll set the alarm for about half six or something during the lunch break. And then, you know, have you ever done that thing where you kind of Sky plus your way, you fast forward your way through the cricket, you can get, a, you can get a session done in about, 20 minutes if you're really good with the pause button um, and, and and the play button. So I generally I generally do that. I'll, I'll kind of fast forward through the morning session uh, without looking at the score. Sometimes sometimes I try and I try and do it without looking at the score, and then about halfway through the afternoon session, I'll finally catch up to to reality. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's been a fantastic series. I, I thought England were were just stunningly good in the, in the in the first test. I thought India were there to be caught cold a little bit they have this they've had this massive emotional high uh coming down you know they're coming down for this massive emotional high of winning in australia and you know weirdly going back to what would have been unfamiliar conditions having i think spent the last you know two or three months in australia so i thought england were you know had a really good opportunity to catch them cold there and did really well and you know the second test it just sometimes you lose to india in india it just happens and i wouldn't get you know i wouldn't get two on their backs it. it was a you know, it was a bit of a, a tawdry performance, but these things happen.
1: On the first test then, it was great, fantastic performance. Obviously, Root's continuing his great form from Sri Lanka, big double hundreds. But there was that slight sense that if we hadn't won the toss, we probably wouldn't have won. And we certainly, if we hadn't won the toss and Root hadn't done well, we, we wouldn't have won. For me, it slightly felt like we got lucky with the toss and our one best player performed well and so... Off that and that alone, we won. You take him out, or he fails, and/or we don't win the toss. Maybe the result isn't quite. Wouldn't have come out the same way, even for that first test, let alone what's to come
2: in the next couple. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think. Obviously, you know, the pitch started. Uh, it started ripping. You know, ripping off for about days three or four, and, and it was going up and down a bit. But it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't actually too bad to to, to, to bat on. Um, and generally speaking uh in the subcontinent days two and three are, are very often the best days to bat. so um you know as we saw was it four years ago four or five years ago now when england kept getting 400 and, and losing because days two and three were still perfectly good for batting and, and india were just able to run up six and 700 so i don't think the toss had that much of an impact weirdly i mean for Kind of psychological reasons, it was it was probably a good thing for England that they were able to get out there and and get first use of the pitch and and put a decent total up on the board. But that that's that, that can kind of work both ways as well. If you you know you can you can easily end the first day and you know, and like two seventy for seven or something and and you feel like you almost you know the game's kind of almost slipped away from you. So it was it was really as much the execution as as, as uh, more than the toss I reckon that put England in charge of that game.
0: You mentioned India being caught cold and it did feel a little bit like that in their first innings because that's where they, I mean, obviously they lost the chance of winning it within the way England batted in the first innings. But then I think India lost the test in their first innings and it felt like a few of their shots were a bit loose, maybe not quite at the races yet. And it did feel a little bit like that. And I remember thinking to myself, they're not going to let this happen again. (laughs) Like they're going to be a lot more switched on for the rest of the series. And then we obviously saw that they're pretty merciless in the second test. But yeah, I agree. It feels like I got caught a bit cold.
1: I don't know what your, and um, both your thoughts were on the, England took a little while to declare in that second, how we went about batting in our second innings was a little bit odd. Cause I did, for me, there was a sense of urgency. Like we're not going to have India in this possession many times again. So if we want to win this test, do do one of the series, let's go for the kill. And we kind of seem to stumble our way to getting bowled out. Obviously, in one sense, who cares? We've them out, we want to test, so it doesn't matter. But there was something about that that I was I was getting very frustrated. I
0: don't know about how you were... It went from Ollie Pope really trying to up the scoring rate to Don Best padding way and over, and it felt like the tactic had switched really suddenly, which I can quite
2: understand. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Hugh Berry made a really good point in the in the Telegraph about this, which is that broadcasters and commentators and journalists and people who talk about cricket have i think of a, a slightly vested interest in wanting to to get on with the game and wanting to uh to get the action moving and i suppose it's better from a, a narrative point of view if you have a slightly sporting spicy declaration that's that's what uh, that's what gets people watching and that's what gets people's attention turned to the game. So there is something slightly untrustworthy about relying on public opinion and, and certainly media opinion in times like this. Um, the bottom line would England scored it basically four and over, certainly for the first 30, 40 overs. They were scoring a four and over uh, against the world's best team, one of the world's best attacks in their home conditions on a turning wicket, a, a wicket where, where it's, it's pretty much going to, you know, it was pretty much turning from ball one. And I thought they did fine. I thought they did absolutely fine. I mean, do best pads away and over. I mean, I don't know what the, the micro tactics were in that situation, but there's still plenty of time in the game. You are what, 400, 450 runs ahead or, or whatever. It's, it's fine. It just, it just wasn't a big, it, it wasn't as big a deal as everyone was making out. You know the difference between 100, having 130 overs to bowl in you out and having 115 overs or whatever it was. It's not. That's that's ultimately not. It, it's a very marginal difference. And but it gets blown up because people are sitting there. You know either you know in the press box or sitting there at home going, i like, oh, get on with it. You know this is dead time. You know and nobody likes watching a team batting over 450 ahead. But the urgency was I think almost entirely confected. Um and if England hadn't won that match, I think you know there would have been a lot more focus on the on the declaration. But ultimately it was they did fine. They did fine, you know.
1: Well, I mean, they won they won with like two sessions to go. So if Don Best could have padded the way overs for the whole of the next morning we still would have bowled them out based on the number of overs it took us to to take the wickets. So yeah, it's interesting what you said about building people wanting to kind of build a narrative or Want, have an, a vested interest in the game moving on, I was half watching it while working, and it was the one thing that was making my working morning that little bit more interesting. So watching this kind of seemingly squander a few overs and the game not really going anywhere, it was winding me up a bit. So, yeah, you may well be right, Jonathan, that may well have been what was uh, causing me angst in my own mind about it.
0: I think it was also, for me as well, probably coming from a place of greed a little bit. Like, it's rare that you get to watch England in that position you were describing, Jonathan, you know, against the world's best attack, world's best team. And, I, and you know, I'm sat there and I'm excited for the scoring rate to get upped and we're going for it towards the end of the innings. And then I probably just got selfishly frustrated when Best started padding it. But yeah, I, I kind of knew that evening, I mean, you texted me, Rob, saying we're still going to win, that it was all a bit of a storm and a teacup, like we were going to win. and It was silly getting angry about it. Um, for what did you think about the, um, the second test then Jonathan? Firstly there was obviously a bit of noise about the pitch uh, I've completely changed my mind on this now, I think actually I was saying it's not a good pitch, that was probably me being better and maybe we need to redefine a bit what a good pitch looks like so for example Somerset, producing Turners maybe they shouldn't get fined, maybe that should be just part of English cricket, but what were your thoughts on the whole pitch debate?
2: Yeah, I mean it, it's, it's there's a very cultural I mentioned to it I thought that you know there does seem to be this idea that having a a seeming seeming wicket that has like a covering of grass and is, is sort of nibbling away on, on on the first morning and it's kind of impossible to bat in that's um that's perfectly fine whereas uh, I, th- I think there's something about a turning pitch on day one which I ju- it just makes a certain ilk of Englishmen feel a little bit queasy like seeing like seeing various like seeing foreign food or, or like you know like if you, if you go to a, a market in in the far east or where, and you just see like a, an unfamiliar animal hanging from a hook in a market you know or, or, or like a piece of an animal that you have not, and you know it's fine you know it's, it's a cultural but it just makes you feel a little bit queasy and that that's that's i think why why so many people got Got really mad at this, at this pitch on 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 which India scored what three twenty and two eighty. It it shouldn't be allowed. It's, it's just the audacity of of India, an Indian curator preparing an Indian pitch in Indian conditions with Indian soil and Indian weather. How dare he? to he? Put an inch of grass in it at least. I thought that was oh it was ridiculous. I don't you know, just highly counterproductive as well because the, the more you the more you moan about the pitch or you know the more you know commentators and broadcasters moan about the pitch you know the, the more you kind of set set yourself up next time I mean when India next come to England if they get something like they got at Laws in, in 2018 where well, I think they were bowled out for about 100 and 120 they're not gonna have a leg to stand on everybody creates home conditions for themselves because conditions are sort of what you get dealt it's a climatic and a and a horticultural thing right not horticulture horticulture flowers isn't it what's which like soil growth it's a geological thing it's the soil you get given which you know is is heavily clay based in england so you tend to you know it's really boring but that's <laughs> yeah well, that's well, what you get yeah because-
1: you're right though that is what the conditions are when you when you play there, there there's a sense to me that the first game, the pitch was flat. And even, even when it was spinning towards the end, it was still like it had played flat for quite a long time. That they'd given it was the same ground as well, it almost felt like India were like, right, can we actually have a proper wicket that does something so that if we lose the toss, we're in the game more from the start. They had that vibe to it. But I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But it, it did slightly feel like, right, you can beat us on the flattest pitch in the world, beat us on this then, and we were found horribly short. Michael, did you get that vibe? That was my kind of feeling from it.
0: I also I also read that part of Coley's thing is he, he wants to be in control of everything. And he got very frustrated in that first test because it, he watched it drift away from him because they couldn't make any inroads in those first two days. And so I think he wants to be in the game and be af- able to affect the game at all times. So if you have a pitch that's doing something from day one, it takes the to toss out the equation a bit more.
2: It reminds me a little bit of um, the 2015 Ashes when England got got trounced at lords uh and you know mitchell johnson was mitchell johnson had, had an amazing game there and in the days after that there was a very short turnaround i think between lords and edgbaston and uh stuart broad came out and a lot of the england players came out and said they wanted like proper english wickets and it, it was a very coded language they, you know oh we want to play on like, good english test wickets and it was impossible not to feel that this was some kind of coordinated communications strategy. Uh, because you know they were very clearly not happy with what they got at Lords. I think Rogers and Smith batted for pretty much the whole of the the first day, and lo and behold, what they got at Edgebaston was you know Australia I think were bowled up one three six on the, on the first day, and then obviously Trembridge they got the slow seamers basically that um, that were I, I, ideal for, for Broad and Anderson and not ideal for pre-Australian batsmen. This kind of thing has always has always gone on in 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 some aspect. And yeah, I mean, I, I, it's it's not it's it's not really surprising to that you kind of eke out every home advantage that you can, and and it, it, this is just really a, an aspect of playing towards your strengths. And and India's India's strength it's it's batting and it's spin bowling, and I think that's uh, they they sort of played their played their hand pretty well. I think actually
1: we've probably done it more egregiously than a lot of countries. I mean, some of the times we're playing Sri Lanka in early May chesterler street and you think this is this is a ridiculous exercise as anderson takes five for 20 in the first on the f- first morning um
2: yeah you, you feel the, like, oval, the oval 2009 like <laughs> the, yeah, what, I, the pitch they put pre- 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 for graham swan
1: yeah I, because it's sometimes like, i feel like almost yeah exactly i, I think we did it worse than anyone really um you so
2: North and crosses on it
1: I've 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 played on some wickets and so you really could play noughts and crosses on. I tell you, Jonathan, sorry, Sur- division five does not pull out the best the best,
2: <laughs>
0: that. Speaking of um speaking of spin, I mean their spinners bowled better than ours, and they have better spinners than ours, and that's something we're gonna have to work around somehow in the third test. But I'm interested to ask you about Don Best, Jonathan, because obviously Don Best had a bit of a tough one. He bowled okay in the first inning of the first test, then I missed it, so I didn't really see the hype about how badly he bowled. I didn't see any of these like 24 tosses in a row, but clearly he bowled bad enough to be dropped for the second test, not rested. They made clear it was a, it was a drop, go away and work in your game. And now, um, because Maureen has taken his pre agreed rest, you know, fair enough. We can talk a bit about, more about that later because I think that's interesting how it's framed. But because Maureen's gone, Bess is going to have to play the next test. There's no other spinners. And I read your piece a while ago about Bess's lucky wickets. And you talked about the fact that he delivers with a high arm. And so actually, he's quite hard to attack. And so these bad balls often end up getting wickets. But you were sort of making the case, it might not be entirely luck. Like, it might be a bit down to his own making. So I'm keen to hear you speak about Bess and how you think he'll get on coming back into quite a tricky situation.
2: Yeah, I mean, I suppose there are certain kinds of spinners who, who base their, kind of their, they base their approach on repetition. Economic repetition on a length and you, you know you, you kind of grind out wickets through either very subtle variation subtle changes in pace or just kind of probing the concentration or the technique of a batsman and you, you talk about stock, deli- stock deliveries and the stock bowlers you know bowlers bowling their stock deliveries putting it on the same spot all day and don best isn't like one he, he isn't one of those bowlers now, he certainly isn't at the moment he may ultimately develop into one of those but he doesn't He just doesn't have the consistency. If you're being slightly harsh, you'd say he just isn't good enough to bowl to bowl consistently yet. But what England, what even selectors and what the England management like in him and what they've seen in him is very occasionally he has the ability, and it was the same with Mohen actually slightly, very occasionally he has the ability to bowl just like a, a wicket taking delivery. And if you look at you know a lot a lot of the wickets he took in the first innings of the first test at Chennai you know, he was, oh no, sorry, it was in Sri Lanka, wasn't it? Um, You know, he was getting, you know, they were slapping long hops to cover and all this kind of nonsense. And it, it looks like he's taking wickets with bad deliveries. But if you, it, it sounds a bit like damning him with vain praise, but if you can't, if a batsman can't line you up, then you are going to get your wickets in slightly different ways. That doesn't make them any less worthy as wickets, but it occasionally means you're going to, you know, you have that surprise factor Uh. If, you're, if you if you both bowl balls in the same place, Absolutely, is going to be able to line you up in a way that they might not be able to if you're bowling a full toss and then a wide long hop and then a Jaffa. Uh, and I just think he's I think he's a different sort of bowler. He may develop that consistency, and it may not be what England want in the long term on on subcontinental wickets where you do have to bowl for forty overs at a, at a pretty tidy economy rate. Um, but that, yeah, that's the sort of bowler they're working with at the moment. The big unknown, I guess, you, you're going, going into the third test is where his, his head is at. And it will, you know. It, he he got, obviously got dropped after his first into 2018, but he, will, he kind of will have been expecting that. Here, he was very much more the man in possession. Uh, and though Leach was bowling well. I, I think you could argue that, that Best went into the winter as, as the lead spinner. And to be dropped for the second test will have hit him pretty hard and, and I, I guess that's the big unknown whether he can whether he can bounce back from that and and where his state of mind is at. And I guess we'll find out in armanabad
0: Talking about the the contrast between like talking about the consistency, that felt like obviously um Rohit hitting an incredible, almost runnable time in the first innings had a bit of a factor. But also the fact that their spinners were just able to keep it so tight, like no four balls. Whereas our spinners, particularly in the first innings, they just were picking them off like Maureen bowled a few Jaffers but also got a lot of four balls. Um, and it does I, um, It does feel a bit worrying that Bess is coming back in. And again, he does bowl those four balls. And Leach feels like someone who can build up a bit more pressure, a bit more like that first type of body we were talking about. If he's bowling well, always putting on the spot, subtle variations. But the, the gap between the spinners does feel about lack of consistency. Um, but I guess we'll see how it goes with the pink ball, whether that plays a factor in the next test.
2: Yeah they say the pink ball is going to go a bit more skiddy isn't it so uh, I've not seen a a pink ball test in Asia so I don't I don't really know how how it's going to you know how that's going to pan out but that, that could that could help him if he gets a bit more skid
1: I'm really interested to see how I it, how it plays out I've the only day and night tests I've seen or experienced have been basically primarily down in um, in Australia Adelaide of course time and again but never seen one in Asia. So I'm, yeah, I'm intrigued. I don't, and I've even, because I can't take an actual holiday, I'm taking two days of annual leave for the first two days of the test. So I can just sit there in front of the telly and um <laughs> that out, because at least there's something to do and look forward to, um, rather than take a day off with nothing to do, like it would be on, a, on another day. Um, Jonathan, if you had to pick maybe, aside from the obvious, so basically, route who played magnificently in that first test. Three England players you think have really stood up and had a a very strong start to the series and maybe done better than you were anticipating?
2: Yeah, um, I suppose... uh, I guess Anderson in in the first test. um, It does does feel a little bit weird, you know, to talk about Jimmy Anderson as a... Oh, he's done unexpectedly well there. I wasn't expecting him to to swing the ball. But... I am not sure that all of us thought that he still had a spell like that in him in Asia. I, I think that a lot of people going into this series could have seen Anderson maybe you know getting a couple of wickets with a new ball, but essentially bowling extremely accomplished, dry, tidy spells i'm not sure I'm not sure we, we, we thought that. I'm not sure. I thought he had a, a spell like like that, an over like that, over where he, he basically ripped through, you know, an entire middle order. I I thought, I thought that Jimmy would I thought Jack that Jimmy was was gone in Asia, but that but that was so I go for him. Um, I thought Ben Folks did really well um, in the. I was going to say in Chennai, but obviously they were both they were both in Chennai. I think Folks gets a bit of a he he gets a bit of a bad rap uh, in terms of his batting. He's, he's really good. And th- this, this idea that he's a pure keeper, and, and he he's a, he's a wonderful keeper, but uh, guess what? It is actually possible to be really accomplished at, at two facets of the game. And in the, you know, he, he could quite, what did he get? 43 something, 43, 44?
1: And while you're speaking there, Jonathan, uh, Michael was goading me with reaction emojis on Zoom because in the age-old Folk <laughs> debate, I have definitely been like a Butler man. I'm like, Ben folks, yeah, look, he's clearly a very good keeper. He's an all-right batsman, but Butler is a great player. Butler should be a keeper. I um, was um, had this go for the whole podcast since we, we basically started um, doing the first lockdown, so all the way over the last year or so, and I was vindicated wonderfully as Josh Butler played well against Pakistan, and I was like, I told you so, I told you so. Um, and I do like Ben folks He's a very good-looking man. He's a very good w- wicket-keeper. I was a little bit annoyed that he did as well as he did because it was a real, I told you so, moment for for Michael.
0: He's just a really That's good great. batsman, though, isn't he? Like, his technique is just really solid. Like, he, I know he's, no, he's not Butler. He's not going to take the game away from opposition. But he's almost certainly not going to play a stupid shot. He's going to keep the scoreboard ticking over. He's good at batting with the tail. And he's just solid. I, just, I, I love him.
2: He's got a lovely balance at the crease. Um, you know, you, you, you could tell, I mean, some of his on-drive, some of his straight driving was was just, you know, just extremely accomplished. England are extremely lucky that they have three world-class options in that position. It's a bit like, you know, obviously, you know, it's kind of a culture war thing, isn't it? Folks against Butler. And, you know, I wrote a column this time last year, just defending Butler ahead of, you know, what, what would have been the Sri Lanka tour. And this was you know, seen as some slight on, some great slight on Ben Folks um but no they're, they're, they're both they're both really good Bairstow's really good you know it's like it's like the whole Messi Ronaldo debate just just be thankful that we have so you know so many you know these these binary options it have, like, sorry it doesn't have to be a binary choice it's not it's not Brexit remain it's um just be just be grateful that, that we have it. and yeah I think it, it might be possible to, to fit them both in at some point yeah
1: um, um, I think um both Joss Butler or Ben Fox, if they're listening, will be very flattered to know that you've compared them to Messi and Ronaldo um, in the pantheon of sporting options. But I get <laughs> exactly what you mean in terms of those. It doesn't have to be one or the other. They're, they're both good and both worthy of their place in their, in
0: their own ways.
2: He's not Chris Reid. If you give him a full test career, it's probably going to average
0: 35. We interrupted you, sorry, Jonathan. You're about, you, you didn't get to see your third person in terms of like who you thought.
2: Um... Oh, uh, Ollie Stone. Ollie Stone. He yeah. did really well.
1: Do you, do you think there's a case for playing him and Woods? I don't know what Archer's elbow is for the next test, but playing a couple of quicker bowlers and trying to back off seniors to take more wickets? and particularly Definitely,
2: good- yes. So, I mean, I've, every so often, England have this idea of, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to go out with a pace battery. And it happened in the, I it was the, the Aegeus Bowl, the first West Indies test last summer. They got they sent Wooden Archer out and, and they lost. And they, oh gosh, oh no 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 oh dear, that's that's that experiment can Um and they kind of retreated into into the safe embrace of Broad and Anderson and, and Wokes for the for the rest of the summer, basically. Um and I thought that was a real shame because like bowlers in, in the same way that batsmen need to bat together to develop chemistry, bowling attacks need to develop chemistry. You need you need to you need to kind of know how to how to bowl with another bowler. You need to kind of work out where how your plans are going to mesh together as an attack. And I, I think if, if England have any, are going to have any chance of winning in Australia at the end of the year, they're going to need at least two of their quick, quick bowlers firing in tandem at the same time. As you know, England are not going to win in Australia with Anderson plus Broad plus Archer slash Wood plus a Spinner. I, it, it's just not going to happen. So, so the more they can get woods, archer, stone, bowling in tandem, learning how to bowl in tandem, learning how to coordinate plans, learning whether you know some some fast bowlers like to compete with each other. Some fast bowlers, you know, Anderson, and Broad have always been incredibly competitive, um but you know, have been able to work together as well. These, these kind of dynamics need to be thrashed out over a series. You can't just you can't just chuck them into the gabber and say right off you go. But you know I I. I understand that. That's obviously easier in easier in theory than in practice. When you know you got a test series to win.
0: No, you're completely right. As in, you can't just expect you can't just drop wood stone archer into the test for the thought of the Ashes. Say, go on then, bowl together, and just expect them few pure pace to just propel us to a series. I remember you wrote a column about this at the end of the summer, Jonathan. You had a interesting response from a couple of the people involved, but I think really
2: still Jimmy. blocked by Jimmy. That is. Well, That's harsh. I'd
1: actually like to pick up on that. before I was going to ask about the whole talking about balancing a team and people getting used to playing together when we're constantly rotating. But we'll come on to that in a second when we speak about, about the Moeen incident. But you, you are someone, Jonathan, who has he does provoke a strong reaction, on, particularly on Twitter, following on Twitter, and you see articles by both, both punters as well as Stuart Broad and Jimmy came out strongly against your article. Um, a certain... BBC cricket correspondent has sometimes taken a shining to you as well. Um, how, how, how do you find that? What's, what's that like? Is that something you just kind of brush off easily? Or do you take it a bit more personally when people are really going after something? You want to spend a couple of hours minimum putting together.
2: That's an interesting point, actually. This idea that, you, you know, you spend four hours writing a column or, or, or two hours writing a, a report or, or whatever, and somebody takes five seconds and, and says, don't like that. an idiot um and you know you you have to be i think you'd have to be full-on sociopathic to to just be able to to brush that off um and you know some people definitely can do that uh being sociopathic so uh and that's just the environment that we live in that said you know i don't want to come come across as one of these sort of um really kind of brazen and often male journalist that says like oh you've got to speak truth to power you know if you're pissing someone off but then you're doing something right uh journalism is something that oh is that Or journalism is something that that somebody doesn't want printed everything else is public relations you know i don't want to go that way because because a a lot of that is is kind of self-serving um you know chauvinistic bullshit but you do also kind of to an extent have to write it how you see it, and a lot of the worst journalism is the sort of journalism that is in response to, or, or kind of preempting a reaction, uh, written half fearfully or or even kind of half tendentiously in an attempt to to anticipate what reaction it's going to get. Um, with a lot of people who uh, I'm not going to name any names, but a lot of journalists who I, I think are are well regarded in the Twitter sphere I find it just kind of crowd pleasing by numbers short little sentences a point that is self obvious but it's all kind of you know wrapped up in shareable platitudes bang 300 retweets um, but it's not I, mean, I, I don't I don't find that approach very um, I don't find it very good I find it, I don't find it very productive I don't, I don't think it it's the most interesting way of talking about sport so yeah, to some extent, you just you just have to call it how you see it. And I, while I wouldn't say I'm indifferent to what people think, you, you can't let that guide you.
0: One thing I would say, Jonathan, is that you always seem to take a different angle to everyone else. But it's always one that I haven't really considered until I've read it. And then I, I appreciate having read it. And then your articles always come from a slightly different place. And then I, and then I enjoy them. And, they, and they're a bit like, as well, your colleague, Barney Roney. I think he always did that as well, particularly writing about football. His piece on Andy Carroll will forever stay with me, but I, I always really appreciate the slight difference. Um, and you're right; it doesn't always like it's not always like most easily tweetable platitud.e But I enjoy them.
2: The easiest thing to say is you know, the easiest thing to write is like this thing here that has happened. It's utterly terrible, and it's 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 utterly you know abominable. And I feel really angry about it. And you should feel really angry about it too. And it's the ECB's fault. Um, nobody, no, nobody ever got three hundred retweets for say, well, you know, there's arguments on both sides. It's complex.
1: I was wondering, Jonathan, maybe given some of that, what, why did you become a sports journalist? I know that's quite a big existential question. But like, what, do you, what do you get out of it, apart from a salary and get paid to watch Sport for a Living?
2: There, there is something incredibly magnetic about, about professional sport. Which if you're not of the standard to play professional sport, will always be alluring. It it will never not be a slightly tingly electric feeling to to walk into a test match, just wave your pass and and get let in when you're not very good at cricket and you have uh, no playing career to speak of. That's that's always a very weird and rewarding feeling. And yet I'm you know, I, I, you, you get people who who finds the proximity to sport so alluring that, you know, they'll kind of, they'll do anything to, to to get close to it. And that's not something I wouldn't classify myself as one of those people. It has to be, you know, I don't just want, just want to be at the test match for the sake of wanting to be at the test match. It's cool. Sure. But if you don't have something to say, you know, and this, this goes back to what you were saying about coming up with something new, coming up with something, a new angle or some new information or a way of looking at the game in a, in a new way that makes it worthwhile for, for people to, to spend their time clicking on the link and, and opening the newspaper and, and reading what you have to say. Uh, that ultimately is classic is, is about, you have to want to convey something. And yet you have to take a certain pride in doing it well, I think. That's, that's certainly why I, I want to do it. Uh, I mean, it is a really, really cool job and I remember when I was eight years old, like my dad bringing home the sports pages and we are you know, like, you get to go to all these games for free. And he goes, yeah, I'm and, go, well, and that, that's cool. And that, that's always, you know, that's that's always the fundamental reason why, why anyone gets into it. But to actually do it full time, you need a sense of purpose. I think that goes beyond, this is a cool job and I like doing it.
0: Just, um, yeah, fair enough. I mean, like, you know, me and Rob are still holding on to the hope, Jonathan, that someone at some point listens to this and goes, oh, you know what, those guys, they could be great commentating on Leicestershire versus Derbyshire. Maybe we could get them in for a day or something. And it
2: could maybe lead to something fun. But, um, why? Right. I mean, look at, I mean, Jared Kimber, Jared Kimber was just, you know, he just ran a blog and he started a blog and wrote some things. And now he commentates on talk sport, you know, and Dan Norris. I don't even know what he used to do, but you know, he just—I—I I I did test match over a few times back in the day. He would just sit there smoking fags and and often getting high, and he'd do his Winston Churchill impressions. You think, well, this is a good laugh. He got a test match
1: special. We've got him coming on. I think it's next week, and um, because for me, the one thing that put me off going down the more what you, what you do, writing about sports. you know I got a, a both me and Michael both have history degrees from a Russell Group at uni. Like we can write prose relatively well, but is that like going to a game, I did it once. I went to a game and had to write. I was there, like, I just want to sit back and enjoy watching the sport, really. I'm happy to talk about it, but actually thinking I'm watching this and at the end of it, I've got to produce something that's worth reading. It took for me something that I love so much, particularly rugby, football, cricket, and going to those games and turning it into like a, oh, this is a bit of a chore now rather than my, my hobby. To what I found in the podcast is this is, I now just get to spend my spare time talking to Michael about cricket, which I used to do anyway, but now I just click record and then put it, and then let, let the world listen to it if, if they want to.
0: Occasionally we get really yeah. cool guests. So yeah, it's, it's a lovely way to spend a pastime um, or working time, as we have done today. <laughs> just going back a bit to the uh, the India series, um, one that's been a bit more of a contentious issue, and I'm sure has provoked lots of articles with very quick judgments, like you've spoken about, but was the way that Joe Root, at the end of a very long, tiring, tough test match for him, described Moeen Ali as having chosen to go home when it transpires, actually, that had always been the deal. When England were asking him to change his mind, he said, no, I do want to go home. And it kind of was putting the emphasis on Moeen's chosen to go home, Moeen's leaving the tour, whereas before the England management always taking the brunt, taking the decision, we're resting this player. And it felt a bit like playing into that thing that Moen talked about, where he's felt like the scapegoat. Did you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I,
2: I would like to know. I would. I, I understand that Joe Root and Chris Silver would both apologise to Murray and Alley, and and you know maybe maybe that's the end of it. Maybe we should leave it there. But I I, I would like to know why did they say that? I'm not sure it was completely whatever it was. It was completely inadvertent. But why did that formulation of words emerge? at that point about that particular player. And I can only think that it's because over the years, that seven years now, though now he's been an England player, there's been a huge amount of respect towards him from the England management. There's been a huge amount of respect for his talent, but not much empathy. And it's hard when somebody is socially, demographically, ethnically, completely different from you to see where they're coming from to put yourself in their shoes. It's kind of easy for Joe Root to put himself in Ben Stokes' shoes. They're friends. They've been friends since the Bunbury days back in, you know, um when they were like teenagers. They've known each other for years. You know, they they know a lot of the same people. It's harder to put yourself in rowan Ali's shoes because you haven't had his journey. You know, you don't you don't have the same um life experiences that he has. And so that to me was a very subtle displacement of a decision that in other cases he would have been very happy to own himself. There's just that little cognitive shift in between uh, Stokes is going home and that's kind of taken as taken as red because you can very easily see yourself in that position. Whereas Moeen has chosen to go home. There is that very slight distance there. And that I think is where the different formulation comes from the other point i want to make is this this thing comes out uh i, I can't remember it was, it was earlier in the week wasn't it and it instantly gets reported in every news outlet and the, the bbc sky Crick info all the newspapers and they report it in exactly the formulation that the ecb so that joe root uh has has put it in should there not be a, a little bit of interrogation of that phrase before you just kind of blindly put that out on the internet to everyone. Should there not be a point at which you say, oh, are we just parroting what, like why has why that formulation of words been chosen and is it right for me to, to print it verbatim? Uh, and So I think that was a big problem in this instance. And you know, I've been on tour with England and the media operation is incredibly professional and efficient and effective as well, uh, kind of getting its message across. And you do find yourself just sort of relaying what the ECB have said when a press release or whatever. Um, and I think in this case, there was a slight failure to interrogate what it was that they were actually saying. And I think it was sort of parroted in a way that that made the whole story a lot worse.
0: One of one of the only pundits I saw who pushed back quite quickly, like big name pundits, because all over Twitter, lots of journalists I follow, like George Dobell was really, prominent on it was saying what is this this isn't right you know why have they phrased it like this but the only big big name i saw was nasa saying, i think pushed back on it quite quickly um yeah
2: but ever, and he yeah, and I, I mean ali martin did it he did it quite you know quite quickly yeah nasa did as well it just something should have just rung a little bell with and, and, and i guess it, i guess this is more with uh editorial desks and web desks rather than individual journalists hang on why is this different to all the others, and why are we reporting it like this? It sh- it should have just it should have just rung a little alarm bell, and I don't think it I don't think it did to many people. I, a couple
1: of thoughts on what you said, Jonathan. I agree, particularly with the context of people going home all the time and people being rotated. Why someone didn't stop and think, well, what was the plan originally for Moen? Was he always going to go home? How does his rotation just that that would have been my like initial question. And so I, I completely agree why it wasn't reported on on the first part of things could it not have been that maybe he wasn't you know thinking he's a cricketer that's his job he's not he's not a wordsmith he's not a speechwriter and he just basically phrased something a little bit lazily or not very well with no further malintent behind it or no kind of it was just accidental actually it could have been another player who was a a, a white northern lad like him and he would have said something something similar it just happened to be do you think there's anything in that or are you pretty pretty convinced that it was no it was was Moeen because it was someone who's maybe a
0: little bit different because of yeah just quickly before you respond Jonathan I, I think from my perspective I feel like it's I don't think Joe Root's the sort of character who would do it intentionally but I think there's stuff there's always stuff going on beneath the surface when any of us say anything right and there's subconscious things and I think for me that's it it is that slight difference. But I don't think Joe is the kind of character who would intentionally do it. But I think for whatever reason, it, it did happen and it, it did it did jar a bit. But anyway, sorry, you go,
2: Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, of course it's subconscious. Of course he's not intentionally throwing Moeen under the bus. Of course he's not deliberately you know, used this dog whistle phrasing to to get the gammons of England to round on Moeen. Uh, he's not done it intentionally. The point is that
1: do you think, he do you, you confident that had it been Jack Leach who was going home, he would have said it differently? So I think he might have said it the same way. And it would have been equally subconscious and lazy and not very good, but it would have been that actually Moeen's ethnicity and background doesn't necessarily come into it.
2: Maybe, maybe. I mean, the, the thing is, we don't, we'll, we'll never know. But I think we know enough about... The way I mean this this feeds into what Moeen himself has talked about, his England experience. There's just something slightly different about the way he gets treated compared to other players. I think against that context, you know, if it was if it was Jack Leach, I don't think people would think more about it. But because there is that pre-existing context of a player who's been shunted up and down the order and who has never really been allowed to find a role in the team, a settled role in the team. I think it's only, it's only natural that people are going to gravitate to that conclusion. That, um, it, that something's not quite going to sit right.
0: Yeah. He became the first player to score 100 plus runs in every position from number one to eight, was a stat I saw. Um, just talking about him shunting up and down the order.
2: That's
1: a good yeah. I'm very, I'm conscious of time. I know you've got to pick your daughter up from nursery and I've got a meeting in... in okay. One thing Michael flagged my attention about 10 minutes before he jumped on the call is that you're a countdown OXO champ. How did that come about? Um, And surely that must be in all your list of achievements in your life, right up the top.
2: Uh, Well, yeah. I mean, I I applied like any other, it was about 2013. So I was kind of a, I was at the Telegraph at the time and, and certainly not, uh, certainly not that well-known. So yeah, I, I, I did, um, I did all right. I won, sort of, yeah. One eight shows. Four. They, they film five in a day, so I won four on on the first day. The last four on the first day, and then came back the next morning and won. I won four, and then, then you qualify for the quarterfinals, and I got my ass handed to me in the quarterfinals by some lad called Glenn from Wolverhampton. Um, they were they're properly good in the quarterfinals, so I, I did not nothing. Uh, no, no no shame in in losing at that stage, and and yeah, it is it is one of the most still one of the most interesting things about me at the age of 35 uh, I've still got the teapot on a, on a shelf in, um, nice. in the kitchen you know and uh, yeah it's good fun I don't, I don't really watch it anymore which is a shame it's basically the same every day isn't it? It's just this-
1: Once you've watched it you're like oh yeah that's Countdown
2: you don't really need
1: to watch it again it's quite, it's quite a nice thing to have on when you're at that time but the problem is I've got older 4.15 whenever it starts I've, I've, got, I've got stuff to do so
2: I can't really. Consider they keep that. moving it earlier, don't they? Isn't it like 3:20 these days? Is it? I don't even know. That's the thing. I don't even know. Sad sign of the times.
1: One final thing, Jonathan. Before you go, we've got two test matches um left. Uh, what do you reckon is going to happen? Do you think England are going to win another one? Could it be a two-two a draw? Could we win the series, or is it now India's procession to a three-one win? I, I
2: think India. I think India have their eye in now. Um, i I'd, I'd like to be proved wrong i i do think england have a still have a, a performance in them uh whether they have a five day performance in them i'm not sure whether they have uh twenty Indian wickets in them again on on a decent wicket i'm not sure but um yeah i i'd, I'd say any probably strong favorites strong strong favorites from here
0: what about what about you michael uh my heart says two all my head says free one so let's see
1: yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I think, come on. I'm going to be confident. I think we're going to win this day-night test, and it's all going to get very exciting. Can England qualify for the World Test Championship final, and then we're going to get pumped in the last one, and that will be. I think for us <laughs> to win
0: the series or draw it, Joe Root needs to score at least another 300 runs. So no pressure, Joe.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, if he, he's in, he's in the form of a lifetime. So why not? I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm going to say we win the day, the day-night test, and then, disappointingly, lose the last one, and that somehow means it's an Australia-New Zealand final, Lords, which is depressing for first world test championship for it to end up like that but such is life eh? well Jonathan uh, thank you so much for joining us have a lovely rest of the day and a good weekend and yeah all the best
2: thank you yeah, thank you for having me it's been a real pleasure